If you've been looking for a comprehensive Bible school curriculum that explores redemptive realities in Jesus Christ grounded in the Word of God, look no further. The goal of this podcast is to spread the life-transforming Word of God throughout the world for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ in what Jesus has accomplished for us through His death, burial, resurrection, and seating at the right hand of God the Father. There's such an untapped potential for Christians to enter into their glorious inheritance in Jesus Christ. Together we will discover what Jesus has done for us by providing such a great salvation and how to appropriate the promises of God in our lives. Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 31, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Each podcast season will cover one of the books that I have compiled over the years. You can find a complete listing of my Christian education material on my website at www.wordinspire.com. You're welcome to download these ebooks for free in PDF format for your own personal or ministry use. So let's explore these biblical truths and principles together that will absolutely transform our lives. God bless. Welcome to the Word of Life study series. Are you familiar with the saying, you are what you eat? That's pertinent to the physical body. So let's expand that concept. You become what you think. As stated in Proverbs 23, 7, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. The thoughts we meditate on and embrace in our minds in time will make their way into our spirit like seeds. The heart of a person is the production center for our life will produce a harvest in our lives. The words we speak drive our thoughts and dreams. They're the most powerful things in our lives. The tongue is the rudder of our life. What we keep on saying will determine our destiny in life. James 3 verse 2 We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what one says, they're a perfect person, able to keep the whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Wrong Thinking About Healing This episode is really important to the overall series on healing because it directly addresses hindrances and stumbling blocks to receiving our healing. I have heard so much religious ideology and jargon over the years that have kept God's people from enjoying good health and healing. God's word sets the record straight and exposes the lies of the enemy that has so blinded folks from the truth on the subject of divine healing. Please be open to what the word and the spirit of God has to say in confronting unscriptural thinking in these areas. Everything we believe should have a chapter and verse behind it or be in harmony with the principles of scripture and the whole counsel of God, particularly the New Testament. John 8.31 in the Amplified, 
So Jesus said to those Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, hold fast to my teachings, and live in accordance with them, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If our thinking is wrong, our believing will be wrong. And if our believing is wrong, then what we say will be wrong too. It all goes back to our thinking. We've got to get our thinking straightened out in order to open the way to our heart to receive the word of God on healing. Some Christians who need healing have said to me, well, maybe God put this sickness on me for some purpose. Did Jesus ever put sickness on anyone? When people came to him for healing, did he ever turn even one away saying, no, it's not my will, just suffer a little longer? You're just not pious enough or humble enough. No, not once. There is not one scripture. We'll never find that in the New Testament where Jesus turned people away. If you find such a scripture in the Gospels, please show me. It is imperative that we get our thinking straight on this matter. If the truth of God's word makes us free, then the lies of the enemy through fine-sounding philosophical religious thought will certainly hold people in bondage. Being misinformed on this vital subject can result in needless suffering and even premature death. I have personally seen this too many times. Luke 5.12 While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Well, if Jesus never turned anyone away from being healed who came to him during his earthly ministry, maybe he has changed his mind on the subject since then. Perhaps the Lord has reconsidered this whole healing thing. It's the best interest of humanity to suffer for a little while, and maybe they will be more thankful and appreciative of the Lord. Obviously, I'm being very facetious here. Sadly, though, some folks have spiritualized something so simple in order to dismiss a wonderful, redemptive provision. Why would anyone want to do that, you may ask? When folks don't get healed, people feel compelled to come up with an explanation as to why it didn't happen. Instead of admitting that perhaps they miss God on the matter somehow, in order to save face, it's easier to shift the blame on God. Well, perhaps God didn't want me to be healed in order to teach me something or discipline me with sickness so I'll be more like Him. That is a dangerous religious ideology that is based on human reasoning, not on biblical revelation. As a result, folks are robbed of a legitimate redemptive right to be healed. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3.6 I, the Lord, do not change. Numbers 23.19 God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he not speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? 1 Samuel 15.29 He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. The Bible says we are joint heirs with Christ, sons of God. We're not beggars. We're new creations, blessed above all people. You can see from the scriptures that it was God's plan for everything connected with Israel to bear the stamp of prosperity and success. Disease and sickness were not to be tolerated among the Israelites, so the church should not tolerate sickness and disease either. Everything connected with the body of Christ, the New Testament church, should bear the stamp of prosperity, success, healing, surplus, and health. Now, of course, this is not all there is to Christianity. 
but for the time being, this is what we're talking about in this series. Now, tolerating sickness and disease in a feeble attempt of trying to be humble is a big mistake. People will quote Matthew 5 verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Religious folks will take this out of context to imply that poverty and godliness go hand in hand. Is just biblical error. Jesus is talking about humility here. Just as in the next verse, blessed are those who mourn, is not talking about wailing and walking around with a sad face all the time. It's talking about repentance from sin. The point I'm trying to drive home is that let's not allow ourselves to be robbed of any of God's redemptive blessings by religion, nor should we allow anything that Jesus has already bought and paid for by his blood to be in vain in our lives. God is glorified when nothing that Jesus did for us in redemption goes wasted. Colossians 2.16 Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why as though do you still belong to it? Do not submit to its rules. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use, because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Religion is so seductive because it is demonic in origin and is based on pride. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Humility, on the other hand, is reality and is based on the truth of God's word that makes us free. The Bible warns us in Colossians about false humility, reverting back to old covenant regulations in order to be seen. Look what I have done. The worship of angels. It builds doctrines on experiences, what I see, on reason, on spiritual mind, and idle notions. It's lost connection with the head, Jesus Christ earthly-minded instead of revelation truth, still tied to the basic principles of this world following man-made traditions, and finally self-imposed worship through penance and the harsh treatment of the body. The origin of religion goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, where the first murder was over religion because of jealousy. It was because of religion and envy that Jesus was handed over to be crucified, according to Matthew twenty-seven eighteen. It was because of religion and envy that Paul was persecuted in Acts 13.45. Religious pride and false humility is an abomination in God's sight, and it was the one thing that made Jesus angry when he rebuked the Pharisees for their religious hypocrisy. Just read Matthew chapter 23 and John chapter 8. What is most tragic about religion is that it robs people of the truth and prevents them from receiving from God healing, peace, prosperity, deliverance, and even the new birth. That is why I hate man-made religion, and so does God, because it's a stumbling block, a thief and a robber of God's precious promises. 
Religion is simply man-made traditions that are contrary to Scripture. By God's grace, I never want to be found responsible of hindering anybody from entering into the full gospel, the full message of this new life in Christ Jesus. Luke 11.52 in the Amplified Woe to you lawyers, experts in the Mosaic Law, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You do not go in yourselves, and you are hindering and preventing those who were entering. So religion is man-made traditions contrary to Scripture. I would like to bring to our remembrance the table that the Lord has prepared for us in the midst of our enemies, sickness and poverty, oppression, fears and the like, in Psalms 23.5. The table of the Lord is full of healing, life, forgiveness, prosperity, peace, joy, and so much more. Suppose in the name of trying to be humble, a believer approaches this banquet table sheepishly and apologetically, only taking a couple of scoops from the plate of forgiveness, and that's it. Then he looks next to him and sees one of those full gospel folks just digging in. I mean, he's taking huge helpings of everything on that salvation table. He just wants to try everything. Meanwhile, our religious brother looks forlornly at his meager sampling. In jealousy, he begins to chide his other brother for being greedy, arrogant, and selfish to presume that he can just help himself to the master's table and partake of whatever and as much as he wants. With a pious tone in his voice, he tells him, What? Do you think this is all for your benefit? You need to show some restraint. First, prove your loyalty to the Lord and suffer lack, sacrifice, and suffer hunger and pains for the master. Who do you think you are? Just then, the Lord interrupts and says to this pious brother, Who told you to carry the burden of sin and the curse that only I could bear for humanity? Why are you shrinking back from what I have provided for your benefit and cost me everything? It is right and proper to be excited as a little child and jump in and enjoy the salvation I have richly provided for you. Certainly, the Bible teaches us to be content and thankful for whatever we have, and I'm not condoning that we raise up disciples of Christ who are only interested in themselves, who are spoiled and self-centered. What I'm presenting is the truth as the Word of God presents it and trying to avoid the ditches, the extremes on both sides of the road, a poverty spirit and a self-indulgence. God is glorified and pleased when His children enjoy the good life that He has provided for us in salvation. Just as natural parents derive immense pleasure and satisfaction when they see their children enjoying the good life provided for them. So let's approach the table of the Lord with boldness and confidence and dig into all that God's salvation entails. Taste it all. Have seconds and thirds. Really, don't stop eating. No apologies, no excuses, and no denying oneself for the sake of religious piety. Also, be sure to take some to go and give it to others so they can get an appetite for the things of God and take their rightful place at the table of the Lord. Psalms 34, 8 Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, now is the day of salvation. Hebrews 4.16 Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. 
The truth is, our God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, according to 1 Timothy 6.17. The same God who, by His divine power, has given us everything we need for life and godliness, in 2 Peter 1.3. I am convinced that many Christians, when they get to heaven, will realize that religion had cheated them out of so many legitimate blessings from God. This example reminds me of the reaction of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. The older son represents the faithful Christian, who serves the Lord faithfully for years. However, when he or she sees other Christians who may be uncommitted get healed, it chafes them. They get all bent out of shape and mad, thinking God owes them something. However, they fail to realize that the promises of God have been provided as a gift and so must be received by faith. Good works does not get us saved, nor do they get us healed. Only faith in God's word appropriates the provision of God in one's life. Notice how the father pleads with his older son in this story. He says, everything I have is yours. In other words, all you had to do was ask. According to John sixteen twenty four. Jesus said, ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Of a truth, everything the older brother wanted or needed was at his fingertips. It's not the father's fault if his son does not take advantage of what already belongs to him. Let's read that in Luke 15:25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Beware of a poverty spirit. Can I just take a quick side journey concerning the subject of prosperity? Because the poverty spirit of lack also creeps into the area of divine healing. Just like Paul's thorn in the flesh, religious folks read into these scriptures things that are not there. Money itself is not evil. It's the love of money that gets folks into trouble. The big danger of having a poverty attitude is that it makes us beggars and whiners. It also causes us to shrink back from God and faith because of an inferiority complex, condemnation, fear, and sin consciousness. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. God does not mind his children being rich financially. He just does not want us to be covetous and materialistic and seek things instead of seeking first his kingdom. We need money to finance the Great Commission and build his kingdom in the earth. Deuteronomy 8.18 But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. Proverbs 13.22 A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. This generation of Job and Abraham did not know anything other than God blessing them financially. 
You can't sell that old lie of the devil that God brings poverty on all of us to keep us humble to the Jewish folks. Their Bible does not say that, neither does ours. The source of that kind of teaching apparently came from Zen Buddhism through the study of Eastern religion by European people at the turn of the 19th century. That philosophy worked its way from here and started a trend of poverty vows and poverty oaths, which are neither in the Bible nor part of the New Covenant, but is actually in violation of the covenant. Then it came over to North America. Beware of this poverty spirit of religious piety to stay humble. It's just the devil trying to steal from God's children and keep finances out of God's kingdom. Yet on the other hand, watch out for the spirit of materialism and consumerism that is pervasive in our society that detracts from God's kingdom priorities. The Bible condemns greed. Mark 4.18 Still others like seed sowed among thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the riches for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So was divine healing only for the early church? Many Bible teachers today tell us that the age of miracles passed away with the death of the apostles. So Christ is not healing the sick anymore. Well, let's investigate this subject and find out for ourselves. Listen to Justin Martyr in 165 AD, one of the great church leaders and scholars of this day. He says, quote, For numberless demoniacs throughout the whole world and in your city, many of our Christian men, exercising them in the name of Jesus Christ, who is crucified under Pontius Pilate, have healed and do heal, rendering helpless and driving the possessing devils out of men, though they could not be cured by all the other exorcists and those who use incantations and drugs. Unquote. So then, this apostolic miracle working power was in the church down in 165 AD. Here's another example. Listen to Irenaeus in 200 AD. Quote, Those who are in the truth, his disciples, receiving grace from him, do in his name perform miracles, and they do truly cast out devils. Others still heal the sick by laying their hands upon them, and they are made whole. Yea, moreover, I have said, the dead even have been raised up and remained among us for many years, unquote. Then down to 200 AD, this same apostolic miracle-working power was in the church then as well. Here is a third example from Origen in 250 AD, quote, And some given evidence of their having received through their faith a marvelous power by the cures which they perform, invoking no other name over those who need their help than that of the God of all things, and of Jesus, along with mention of his history. For by these means, we too have seen many persons freed from grievous calamities and from distractions of mind and madness and countless other ills, which could be cured neither by men or devils. Unquote. So then down in 250 AD, this same apostolic miracle working power was in the church. Dr. Waterland, Creation of Redemption, page 50, says, the miraculous gifts continued through the 3rd century, at least. Then he tells how, under Constantine, the church became flooded with worldliness and began to put its trust in earthly rulers than in God. But even then, those who remained true to God saw miracles performed in the name of Jesus. Theodore of Mapustes in 429 AD says, quote, Many heathen among us are being healed by Christians for whatever sicknesses they have. So abundant are miracles in our midst. Unquote. Reverend A. Boast, 
History of the United Brethren, quotes the famous Zinzendorf words spoken in 1730, To believe against hope is the root of gift of miracles, and I owe this testimony to our beloved Church, that apostolic powers that are there manifested, we have had undeniable proofs thereof in the unequivocal discovery of things, persons, and circumstances, which could not humanly have been discovered, in the healing of maladies in themselves incurable, such as cancers, consumptions, when the patient was in the agonies of death, all by means of prayer or a single word were healed. Unquote. Dr. A.J. Gordon, Ministry of Healing, a book every saint should read, quotes from the Confession of the Waldenesses as follows, quote, Therefore, concerning the anointing of the sick, we hold it as an article of faith and profess sincerely from the heart that sick persons, when they ask it, may lawfully be anointed with anointing oil by one who joins with them in praying that may be effective to the healing of the body according to the design and the end effect mentioned by the apostles. And we confess that such an anointing, performed according to the apostolic design and practice, will be healing and profitable. Unquote. Dr. Gordon goes on to say, quote, Two streams of blessing started from the personal ministry of our Lord, a stream of healing and a stream of regeneration, the one for the recovery of the body and the other for the recovery of the soul. And these two flowed on side by side through the apostolic age. So is it quite reasonable to suppose that the purpose of God was that one should run on through the whole dispensation of the Spirit and that the other should fade away and utterly disappear within a single generation? We think not, unquote. Having now proven that all manner of sicknesses were cured by prayer down to 1750 AD, the days of Zinzendorf, let us prove to you that God is still today healing all manners of diseases in answer to the prayer of faith. So let's now look at some modern accounts of God's healing power from Roy Hicks in Bodily Healing and the Atonement. Number 1. Violet M. Collins from Vancouver, B.C. was born without a rectum passage. Best surgeons in Toronto operated, told her she could not live, was anointed and prayed for, and instantly made as normal as any other girl. Number two, Mrs. H.R. Shortreed of Vancouver, B.C., had sugar diabetes in advanced stage, anointed, prayed for, and healed. Number three, Mrs. Jean Barker, West Vancouver, B.C., and Mrs. M.M. Meadows of Vancouver, B.C., both had operations for dreadful cancers. Mrs. Barker had both breasts removed. These cancers grew again. Both women were anointed and prayed for. Today are well. Number four, B.M. Caldwell, Vancouver, B.C., was cured by prayer of dreadful stammering and affliction from boyhood. This was a marvelous healing. Number five, Reuben Marker Scorchard of Vancouver, B.C., had adhesions of the bowels for nine years, operated on, and became much worse. Also ruptured, anointed, prayed for, and healed by the Lord Jesus. Mr. Scorchard was a Presbyterian elder. Number six, Mrs. Frances McClurg of Vancouver, B.C., was paralyzed 19 years, and her eyesight was almost gone, was anointed, prayed for, and healed completely by the power of God. She threads the finest needle today. Number seven, Mrs. Ziva Parker of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, known as Daredevil French Bobby, jumped from a plane 2,000 feet at the fairgrounds. The parachute failed to open until she was almost down. 
Her back was broken in three places, and seven ribs were so fractured that they protruded through the flesh. She was rushed to the hospital and put in a plaster of Paris cast. Doctors said that she would never walk. She was instantly healed while lying there on her cot in Dr. C.S. Price's meeting. She had been born again and has since won many souls to Christ by her incredible testimony. Finally, number eight, Reginald Williams of West Vancouver, B.C., cut off the top part of his left thumb at the joint below the nail. He was anointed and prayed for, and God caused that part to grow on again, nail and all. Upon examination of both thumbs, you could not tell which one God had performed this wonderful miracle. So God is the same. He has not changed, nor does he show favoritism. What he has done for these, he is ready to do for you. Please take hold of these healing scriptures shared in this episode. Then drop on your knees and claim your healing on the authority of these promises and the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ died for your sicknesses as well as for your sins. Understanding the Fall of Mankind So how did sickness enter in this world? Our answer is found in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. Therefore, physical death and all that produces it are the direct results of sin. By virtue of creation, the earth and all that God has made belongs to God because he is the author of creation. God is the owner. He holds the title deed. It all belongs to him. And so in this aspect, he's sovereign. Psalms 24 verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Haggai 2.8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Yet as soon as he finished restoring the earth to a habitable state, he turned it over to Adam on a lease, to be steward and caretaker of it. God gave Adam the keys to the car, so to speak, to get into the driver's seat and take charge of this earth. For a specific period of time, what we call Adam's lease, the last 6,000 years since Adam and Eve until now have been a time for human beings to be born and their free will tested in order to determine where they will spend eternity, with God in heaven or the devil in the lake of fire. In Revelation chapter 21, after the millennial 1,000-year reign of Christ is over, Jesus, the last Adam, having destroyed everything the devil has messed up in the Garden of Eden, turns over the kingdom to God the Father. Mankind's time or lease is over at this point, and we go into the endless age. This is when the Bible ends. We will have to wait until we get to heaven to find out all the wonderful things God has in store for us in eternity future. 1 Corinthians 15.24 Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that that does not include God the Father himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Genesis 1.26 And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, 
Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In Genesis 2.15, in reference to the Garden of Eden, God told Adam to take care of it or to keep it. This implies to guard and protect it from intruders. This is the first reference in Scripture of the existence of an enemy to God and man in the earth. Let's look at the Hebrew word meaning for keep, which means to put a hedge about, as with thorns, to guard, generally means to protect or attend to. I have heard people ask this question, why put that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place anyway? But what good is it to have free will if you don't have an opportunity to make a choice to obey or disobey God's commandments? Adam was created with the potential of immortality in a perfect state since he was created. Death would only occur if Adam disobeyed the command of God relative to eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2.16 And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Man was created in God's image. He was endowed with intelligence, emotion, and free will. He was a free moral agent, therefore he was capable of making a choice. Since man was created for God's glory, according to Isaiah 43.7, and since he could best glorify God by freely choosing to worship and serve him, it was necessary that Adam be given an opportunity to make a choice. For Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden was not only a home in paradise, it was also a place of probation, a place to test their obedience and loyalty to God. The probation of Adam and Eve was based upon a clear, direct commandment, a simple law of works. The law had two parts. Number one, a positive part, consisting of a glorious provision. And number two, a negative part, consisting of a clear prohibition. Genesis 3.1 Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. In Genesis chapter 3, the temptation of Adam and Eve is attributed to the serpent that is said to have been more crafty than any of the other wild animals. Remember that it was Adam's responsibility to keep or protect the Garden of Eden from intruders. The serpent allowed Satan to manifest himself through it in order to address Adam and Eve with a proposition to rebel against God, just as he originally had done with the one-third of the angels. Satan and his host of rebels, fallen angels and pre-Adamite spirits known as demons, were imprisoned on the earth without a kingdom. They had witnessed what God had done for mankind and were waiting for an opportunity to strike again at God by usurping Adam's authority. In Ezekiel 28 verse 11 and Isaiah 14 verse 12 speaks of Satan's fall and the original sin. Now this occurred before Adam and Eve during the dispensation of angels when one-third of God's angels followed Satan in a rebellion against him. Revelation 12 4 this account puts Satan as the real originator of sin, sickness, and disease. We see now on earth today is just a repeat of how he operated in his original pre-Adamic kingdom that was ultimately destroyed in a flood that made the earth formless and void, according to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 through 2. Now Revelation 12.9 states, The great dragon was hurled down the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Many scholars believe that the serpent was originally an upright animal 
and was most beautiful of all the creatures. This seems likely because the curse upon the serpent reduced him to a crawling, slithering creature. Satan finally had an opportunity through the cooperation of the serpent to beguile Adam and Eve into committing high treason, thus rebelling against God through disobedience and thus turning over man's dominion and authority over to Satan, the usurper. Jesus put it this way, The devil was not intended to be part of God's redesign of the earth and the introduction of mankind into this world. Satan was an outsider, an alien wanting in, a thief and a robber, but climbs in by some other way, Jesus said. Satan, through the serpent, deceived and tricked Adam and Eve to give over the keys to their dominion. Satan's objective was to steal man from God as a way of getting back at God. Satan wanted to rule again and set up his kingdom of darkness and dominate mankind. But Jesus became a man, born into this world through the virgin birth. Jesus is the one who enters by the gate and is the shepherd of his sheep. John chapter 10 verse 1. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The original sin is the same temptation used today in order to entrap people in the bondage of disobedience and slavery to the law of sin and death. The lust of the flesh, good for food. The lust of the eyes, pleasing to the eye. And the pride of life, desirable for gaining wisdom. So you can see the connection between the fall in Genesis 3 and 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, which states, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve took that fatal bite, and in so doing, surrendered their God-given dominion over the earth, and relinquished it over to the devil. There is a universal law that states in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, that you are a slave to whom you obey. And that is what happened in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve obeyed Satan and disobeyed God, they became slaves to Satan and gave him the authority to become the small g God of this world that was originally given to them by their creator. So as a result, Adam and Eve had committed high treason and joined Satan's rebellion against God. Mankind became spiritual outlaws. James 4.4 You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of this world becomes an enemy of God. Romans 6.16 Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Luke 4.5 The devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Notice the statement that Satan made, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. That's right, sports fans. Satan stole that authority from Adam in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve obeyed Satan and rebelled against God, 
Satan became the small g god of this world instead of Adam and Eve. When we say world, we're referring to the culture, economic, and political affairs of mankind. The world system is what Satan is god over. Creation, as we said before, still belongs to God. Satan is the small g god of this world now. That's why it's in such a mess. That is why sickness and disease kills millions of people every year. 2 Corinthians 4.3 And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 1 John 5.19 And we know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. This explains why Jesus said to the man whom he had cured at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, verse 14, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. His sickness had come as the result of sin. Whether it was a personal sin he had committed or the general sin of the fall of mankind, which gave Satan dominion to oppress people with sickness and disease, the root cause of death is the same, sin. That is why Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. John 1.36 Jesus dealt with the root of all mankind's problems, the very thing that gave Satan his authority in the first place back in the Garden of Eden, sin. Let's look at another example in the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 2, verse 9, Which is easier, Jesus said, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. The people did not believe that Jesus had the power to forgive this man's sins. So he said to them, In effect, I will now show you that I have the power to forgive sins by curing this palsy, which is a consequence of sin. When you see that I can cure this sin-produced disease, then you will know for certainty that I also can take away sin itself. Acts 10.38 How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good, healing all who are under the power of the devil because God was with him. 1 John 3.8 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Luke 13.10 On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there, who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Now notice what Jesus said in verse 16. Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan had kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what had bound her? Here's another reason why we are absolutely sure Satan is the author of sickness as well as sin. is because Christ always uses the same harsh word, epitemeo, to rebuke sickness, Satan's work, as he uses to rebuke evil spirits. In Luke 4.35, we read that Jesus rebuked epitemeo, him, the evil spirit in the man, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. In Luke 4.39, we also read, so Jesus stood over her and rebuked epitemeo, the same word as in Luke 4.35, the spirit causing the fever, and the fever left her. Jesus had used the same harsh word to rebuke all sicknesses as he used to rebuke all evil spirits, 
because all sicknesses are caused by Satan. Acts 10.38 makes it very clear that sickness and disease is either direct or indirect satanic oppression. Being under the dominion, power, or lordship of Satan, Jesus came to earth for one reason, to destroy what Satan had set in motion back in the garden through the fall of mankind that he had instigated. We have been delivered, set free, ransomed from Satan's control over our lives. Jesus is now our Lord, and we are citizens of his kingdom, of his righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14.17 Colossians 1.13 in the Amplified The Father has delivered and drawn us to himself out of the control and dominion of darkness, and has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have our redemption through his blood, which means the forgiveness of our sins. Yes, every sickness, disease, and deformity that Christ had cured while on earth was the result of Satan's work, and it is the same today. Not only is Satan the originator of sickness, but he is the propagator of it. For the Bible informs us that he has special evil spirits whose chief business is to make people sick, as we see in Luke 13.11, concerning a spirit of infirmity or sickness. The word for infirmity here is asthenia, the commonest word in the Greek language for sickness. This unfortunate woman had been dominated for 18 years by an evil spirit, a spirit the Bible calls a spirit of sickness. Yes, Satan really has spirits of sickness, whose mission in this world is to propagate sickness and disease. That does not mean when a person is sick, that is always the result of a literal demonic presence. Remember, the fall of mankind has released into the very atmosphere bacteria that causes sickness. So it would require the Holy Spirit to provide revelation as to whether or not a demon is present causing the ailment or not. In addition to spirits of sickness, Satan also has deaf and dumb spirits to afflict mankind. In Mark chapter 9 verse 25, When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and to enter him no more. In Mark 1.23, we read, Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean or unwashed, dirty and foul spirit. Then Satan also has spirits who are specialists in polluting folks' minds and imaginations, energizing them in the area of immorality, particularly sexual sins. In Acts 16.16, we read of a girl who was possessed with a spirit of divination. This was an evil spirit which gave her the ability to fortune tell. This is where psychics and mediums get their influence, through familiar spirits or demonic power. Acts 16.16 in the Amplified, As we were on our way to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who was possessed by a spirit of divination, claiming to foretell future events and to discover hidden knowledge, and she brought her owners much gain by her fortune-telling. 1 Samuel 28.7 Then said Saul unto his servants, Seek me a woman that has a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman that has a familiar spirit at Endor. 1 Samuel 28.7 In the Amplified Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, between the living and the dead, that I may go and inquire of her. His servant said, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Satan then has all kinds of evil spirits 
and I would venture to say that thousands of these belong to that group designated as spirits of sickness. No wonder we read in Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan, and not God, is the author and propagator of all sickness and disease. If the source of sickness in a person's life was not through the effects of the fall of man, it was carried out by evil spirits that afflict, harass, and oppress humanity. So did Jesus succeed in his mission in destroying the works of the devil? Absolutely. Which means not only are we delivered from sin, but also from the consequences of sin, which is death. Sickness and disease are byproducts of death. But one may say, yeah, but Satan is still in the earth and people are still dying. Let's look at what the Bible has to say about that. First of all, when it comes to physical death for the Christian, the Bible calls it to fall asleep. In a number of passages like 1 Corinthians 15.20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Why would God use that word choice? Simply because physical death is only a temporary state. One day, all of God's people will receive new resurrected, glorified bodies with no more death in it due to Adam's fall. Philippians 3.20 But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 We believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore encourage one another with these words. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15.20 But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who has put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Going on to verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. 
When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will become true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. God has the final word. What Satan thought would be a perpetual state of death is reversed by our Lord Jesus Christ. But this is a future event that we are looking forward to. In the meantime, Jesus has provided physical healing for our mortal bodies. And if the Lord tarries his return, it's God's will for us to be satisfied with long life, according to Psalms 91.16. And our bodies will simply wear out and fall asleep. No pain, no wasting disease, just a simple transition from this life to the next. Romans 8.11 And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life, zoopizo, in your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. This verb, give life, is zoopizo and comes from zoe, which means life, and poeo, which means I make. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to keep making life in these mortal bodies of ours. This speaks of the God kind of life that Jesus came to bring humanity in John 10.10. For this life is the enlightenment of mankind, John 1.4. The Greek word for this kind of life is zoe. Let's now talk about how Jesus rebuked the storm. From the natural standpoint, it is difficult for people to understand that most of the laws governing the earth today came into being through the fall of mankind, when Adam sinned and the curse came upon the earth. Because people don't understand this, they accuse God of accidents, sickness, and the death of loved ones. God is not the author of any of these things. People also blame God for the storms, catastrophes, earthquakes, and floods that occur. Even insurance policies call these acts of God. No, these are not acts of God, they are acts of the devil. Their author is Satan, either directly or indirectly. All of these natural laws, as we understand them, were set aside by Jesus, whenever necessary, in order to bless humanity. Bear in mind that Jesus said, He that has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. Well, we don't see Jesus bringing any storms upon people, do we? We see him calming the storms. A storm had arisen on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus was in the back of the ship asleep on a pillow. The disciples awoke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? They thought they were going down at sea, but Jesus arose and rebuked the wind. He wasn't rebuking something God did. He was rebuking something the devil had stirred up. You see, Adam was originally the God, the small g, of this world, to rule and exercise dominion over God's creation. God made the world, Psalms 89.11, The heavens are yours, and yours also the earth. You found the world and all that is in it. Then he made mankind through Adam. He said to Adam, I give you authority to rule this earth. You are the one who is to dominate it. But Adam sold us out to the devil. He didn't have the moral right to do it, but he had the legal right, because the earth was under his charge. God put it into his hands. Adam committed high treason and sold out to the devil. 
And the Bible tells us that now Satan is the small g god of this world, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So when did Satan become the god of this world? Right after Adam had sinned. Mark 4.35 That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Let's now look at the account when Jesus rebuked the fever. Whenever Jesus saw the work of Satan on display through sickness and disease or demon possession, he intervened and rebuked it. Again, Jesus was not rebuking the work of God in folks' lives. Jesus' mission was to destroy the devil's work in people's lives. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. How we've gotten this all messed up and confused is beyond me. The Bible certainly makes it simple enough. Luke 4.38 Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them, and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. Acts 10.38 in the Amplified How God anointed and consecrated Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, and with strength and ability and power, and how he went about doing good, and in particular, curing all who were harassed and oppressed by the power of the devil, for God was with him. So is God in control of everything on the earth? We need to get some of these things straight in our minds, because many in the church world are confused. People have all kinds of unscriptural ideas. Some think, well, God's got everything under control. He is sovereign, so whatever happens does so for a reason. So don't question or resist it. But that may or may not be so, according to how you mean it. If you mean that God is ruling the earth right now, no, he isn't. He is going to rule it again one of these days, but he's not right now. There was an interesting article by a well-known newspaper columnist. He said in effect, I don't claim to be a Christian, but I'm not an atheist or an agnostic. The atheist says there is no God. I believe there is one. The agnostic says there may be a God. He doesn't know. I believe there is. I don't believe that everything just happened into being. He continued, I believe some supreme being created everything. But what hinders me from being a Christian is what I hear preachers saying. I'm confused because they say God is running everything, and if he is, he sure has things in a mess. Then the man alluded to wars, children being killed, poverty, disease, and sickness, saying, I believe that there is a supreme being somewhere, and that everything he made was beautiful and good. I just can't believe those things are the work of God. Luke 4 verse 5, The devil led Jesus up to a high place 
and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Well, the truth is, those things came from the fall when Adam sinned and Satan became the small g god of this world. When Satan is finally eliminated from the earth, there will be nothing that will hurt or destroy. And then it ought to be obvious where all those things came from. Jesus' statement, He that has seen me has seen the Father, and his description of the Father makes it impossible to accept the teaching that sickness and disease are from God, and the circumstances of life originated from our Heavenly Father in order to make us humble. The very nature of God refutes such an idea, for God is love. It would be slander to incriminate God with the works of the devil. Some may call this belief naive or simplistic. I just call it Bible, without human reasoning. Let's read John 10.10 in the Amplified. The thief comes only in order to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have and enjoy life and have it in abundance, to the full till it overflows. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd risks and lays down his own life for the sheep. This is also referencing Psalms 23. In John 10.10, we see the simplicity of the truth of God's word. Good God versus bad devil. Simple theology. I am not buying the argument that God at times will send trials and tests our way to keep us humble and to obey his will. That line of thinking does not fit with the model of the good shepherd that we see in scripture. When we read in Psalms 23 verse 2 that he makes us lie down in green pastures, he leads us beside quiet waters, he restores our soul. Trials and bad circumstances are not conducive to experiencing the rest of God in green pastures and quiet waters. However, the good shepherd does have a rod, his word, by which he corrects, rebukes, and chastises us for training in righteousness, so that we can share in his holiness. God will not break our arm to get his point across or afflict us with cancer to keep us in line. Certainly, he can work the good out of what the devil meant for harm, but he is not the author of it. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, God uses his word to train and correct us. Hebrews 12.10 Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Acts 3.19 Repent then, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Hebrews 4.1 Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Clearly, according to the Bible, the devil is the author of trials, tests, and temptations, and an attempt to kill, steal, and destroy from us according to John 10.10. The Lord is about keeping us from evil. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. If God was the author of bad experiences, then he would be contradicting himself by delivering folks from evil that he created. Look, sickness and disease, oppression, poverty, and the like are evil, not something good. It's amazing how religion can twist and distort the plain truth. 
1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. Psalms 34.19 A righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He protects all his bones so that none of them will be broken. 2 Timothy 4.18 The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, God is our refuge. We have a safe refuge to find shelter in during the storms of life. Psalms 23.4 Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is on our side. He is for us as our protector and shield from the enemy. The Bible states in Ephesians 6.12 that our enemy is not flesh and blood, but the devil and his entourage. He roams around as a roaring lion looking for opportunities to create trouble and havoc in our lives. 1 Peter 5.8 He is the accuser of the brethren, trying to build a case and collecting evidence against us so that we would be judged and turned over to him, according to Revelation 12.10. 1 Corinthians 5.4 and chapter 11 verse 31. However, even in the midst of persecution and trials of our faith, the Lord is there. Psalms 23.5 You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Jesus said in John 12.47 As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So let's keep the record straight and not attribute the works of the devil to God. Because Jesus set the standard of God's will and God's heart for humanity. As you know, sickness, disease, pains, and tears are not part of it. So what is the will of God for humanity, and especially his children? Well, Matthew 6.10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is there sickness, disease, suffering, and wasting illnesses in heaven? Are there hospitals in heaven? Do folks still need to take Advil for headaches in heaven? Obviously, no. That is not God's will up in heaven, nor is it his will on earth, ever. Psalms 23, 6. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's read Psalms 91, verse 9. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Revelation 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. 
and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You see, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. According to 1 John 3.8, God is not the dealer in death. The Bible attributes that kind of work to the devil. The wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23, because sin places a person into Satan's territory where legally he can oppress them with death. The devil is the death dealer. That is why Jesus came, to take away our sins and thus pull the carpet out from under Satan's feet to remove the legal basis that kept humanity in his death grip. 1 John 3.8 He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Hebrews 2.14 Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Sickness, disease, torment, oppression, along with all the miseries of life, is the direct or indirect effect of the devil operating in folks' lives. That is why we must keep the door shut to the enemy and be quick to forgive and quick to repent. So through the blood of Jesus and the life of obedience in line with God's word, we too can say, the devil has no hold or place in my life. Let's read that in John fourteen thirty. Jesus said, I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Let's read that in the Amplified. I will not talk with you much more. The prince, the evil genius or ruler of the world is coming, and he has no claim on me. He has nothing in common with me. There is nothing in me that belongs to him, and he has no power over me. Let's go back to Acts 10.38 for a moment. Who anointed Jesus of Nazareth? God did. And Jesus said, The Father that dwelleth in me, he does the work. According to John 14.10, God did these works of healing through Jesus, by anointing him with the Holy Spirit and with healing power. What did Jesus do with the anointing with which God had anointed him? He went about doing good. What was the good that he did? Healing. So God was healing when Jesus healed, because it was God who anointed him. God is in the healing business, not in the sickness business. God is in the deliverance business, not in the bondage business, or bringing negative circumstances of life our way in order to punish and keep us in submission. Notice in Acts 10.38, who was healed by Jesus? Healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Now that's a plain statement, all. That means everyone was healed under the ministry of Jesus was oppressed of the devil. In other words, the devil had something to do with their sickness. That doesn't mean an evil spirit was always present. It just means the devil was behind the whole situation, either directly or indirectly because of the fall of man. They were oppressed of the devil, every one of them. Yet to hear some people talk nowadays, even ministers, you would be led to believe that God and the devil had swapped jobs for the last 2,000 years. You'd think that God was putting sickness on people and the devil was healing them. No, the devil is the same devil he always was, and God is the same God. 
Consider the great commission Jesus gave us in Mark 16. Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison it will not hurt them at all. And they will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. Let's stop and analyze this. Which one of the sick did Jesus say to lay hands on? He just said, the sick, period. Well, if God were the author of sickness, if he did put sickness and disease on people, and if it were his will for some to be sick, then Mark sixteen eighteen would be confusing, because Jesus authorized us to lay hands on all the sick and said that they would recover. God does not contradict himself by making people sick and then turning around and healing them. That would make him a lawbreaker, according to Galatians 2.18. Now, if it was God's will for some to remain sick, Jesus would have to have said something like this, Lay your hands on those for whom it is the will of God to heal, and they shall recover. And those whom it isn't the will of God to heal, they won't recover. But that wasn't the case. God set the church against sickness, period destroying the works of the devil as Jesus had done while on the earth, John fourteen twelve. I like what it says in James five fourteen, Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Verse 14 asks, Is any sick among you? Among whom? The church. So it must be God's will to heal any of the sick in the church. Therefore, it can't be the will of God for any in the church to stay sick. Romans 12.2 states, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The contact of verse 2 is found in verse 1 about offering our bodies unto God as a living sacrifice. But there is also an implicit interpretation here concerning healing. We can also honor God by appropriating healing promises from the Bible, since our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Prohibiting the devil's sicknesses and diseases from having dominion in our bodies is a way to honor God as an act of spiritual worship. Renewing our minds with God's word concerning His will for us to walk in divine health keeps us from conforming to the world view of accepting sickness and disease as just a normal part of life. No, it's not normal, but rather abnormal for God's children to suffer for things that Jesus already suffered for us 2,000 years ago as our substitute. And it's totally not God's will to be any more afflicted with cancer here on earth as it would be in heaven. I don't expect to be taking any Advil in heaven for a headache. So why should I need to take it now on planet Earth? I highly encourage you to continue listening to the Word of Life Study Series podcast and encourage your friends to tune in as well. The scriptures encourage us in Acts chapter 17 verse 11 to receive the message with great eagerness and to examine the scriptures every day in order to confirm the truth that you're hearing. God's word is our final authority for all matters that pertain to life and godliness. 
I'd like to close this episode by praying over you according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And in chapter 2, verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Be blessed and see you soon.